Um, some carrots grew in our, uh, like coming through in our garden. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I'll show you after. Oh, the are whole, they like full grown? Like, yeah. like full size, I mean? They're, they're pretty small they're at small, the moment. Like ones? But yeah, uh, it was exciting. Do you like carrots? I do. Ooh. Do you not like carrots? No, hate them. Oh, really? I don't like any orange vegetable. I think you're supposed to really eat orange vegetables too. Like I think they're good for you. It's good for your eyes, right? Yeah. Oh, this could explain a lot, Josephine. <gasps> Maybe I should just suck it up. Like I'm old enough to just be like, you've got to do it. It's good for you. You Could you cook them a certain I really way? like pumpkin soup and I make a pumpkin soup that's pretty much just pumpkin. Yeah. So like I can get it in me in other ways. But, like, like you wouldn't need it in a salad or anything. Why would you have a salad? (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Reeve. Hi, Josephine. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. How are you? Good. You got your cute scrunchie in. I do, always. Do you know what I was thinking? They don't really know who we are. What do you mean? Well, like, like it's been a while since we've been like... Oh, yeah. Hi, everyone. This is my favourite musical, the podcast. My name's Josephine. My name's Ruth. Uh, Ruth is uh, (laughs) 30-something. You can say it. I'm 33. (laughs) I just can't give you a bio. Well, no, like, I forget that you're not 16 anymore. I mean, I'm very much not 16. Very much. Um, Yeah, we're early 30 people. I'm not talking very well today, am I? We are, we are lovers of musical theatre who have sort of also like qualifications in the field. Indeed. And that's why we decided to make this musical theatre podcast. Josephine's a performer and I'm an arts admin nerd. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty perfect. Yeah. And we like listening to musicals and watching them and performing them. Indeed. And so, yeah, that's what we do on this podcast. We, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we talk about that. We do. So that's that's my intro because as I was I was driving here to the studio today and I was like, how long has it been since we've actually said, because we introduce our names but we don't really ever say like who we are. Yeah, that's true. We're yeah. both married. Yeah. I have dogs. I Elton love and Ziggy. dogs so much. My dogs are the best. Yeah. And my husband Andrew's our sound engineer. Shout out. And Josephine's husband Shane is... A performer. A stone cold fox. He's a fox. <laughs> and he's a fox. His the pants he was wearing last night. Woo. <laughs> we did a we did a performance last night. We were on a stage, which is very rare in this these COVID times. It was it was a real novelty, wasn't it? It was, but he was wearing these pants that were so beautifully fitted and yeah. He'll be blushing while he's listening to this episode. But he'll know what I'm talking I'm talking about his delicious butt. But anyway, <laughs> we don't need to go into that. <laughs> So, Ruth, um, yeah. it's episode 28. It is. Of the main episode. Of course, we do uh, like a, se- I would call it like a secondary, what, like a, what's the word? It's almost like an appendix episode. Yeah. What's the an word add-on. I'm looking for? An yeah. addendum? Oh, yeah, addendum's a good one. Yeah. Every Thursday we release a mixtape episode. A footnote, that's cute. Um, and yeah, every Monday you'll hear a longer form. I actually got some feedback last night oh, from yeah. uh, your mother-in-law. Okay, good. She she was very complimentary. She said she loves the podcast, but it's a bit long. <laughs> and I said, "Yes, Ruth likes to have a chat." But also like you know, podcasts are this long. Yes. It, like this that's not that 
rare. I'm not interested in editing my thoughts down. No. Actually. Sorry, Beverly. Sorry, Beverly. Also, my mother-in-law told Josephine that Josephine's her favourite. And, and she's not the her first, own daughter-in-law. She's the first person who said that because Ruth's got like actual fans and everyone thinks I'm a bitch, which I probably am, but Beverly loves it. Thank you, Beverly. It's all right. You're owning that. I'm owning it. Yeah. I'm not changing. Uh, do, you do, you have have, any, do you have a spotlight or apologies? I don't have any apologies. The, I'm sorry. Get the order right, I'm bitch. sorry. Okay. I don't have any apologies. I do have an apology. Do you? Josephine yeah. gets annoyed with me when I get the order wrong. Yes, this I do. This is her... Doing the the bitchy things that everyone loves. (laughs) Loves in inverted commas. Okay, I have an apology. I want to say thank you to Sharon Hogan for sending in this correction. When we spoke about Rob Guest, and we've spoken about him a couple of times, I said that Rob Guest held the record for performing the role of the Phantom with 2,289 performances. Like the longest ever Yeah, like he Phantom, was the, he the, was the most person who's performed Phantom the most. Yeah. And actually, thank you, Sharon, Howard McGillan holds that record with 2,544 performances. <laughs> insane. Yeah, which is crazy, like both of them insane numbers, but Howard McGillan is the person who holds the record. If someone is good at such things... Uh, feel free to update Rob Guest's Wikipedia page because it is currently incorrect. It's out of date. I wonder how many Wikipedia pages boast that someone has played the Phantom, holds the record for playing the Phantom the most number of times. Well, then I was like, is it just on everyone's page? Like, should I just be, so I feel bad that Howard McGillan, I mean, it's on, so it's on Howard McGillan's Wikipedia page. It's on on Rob Guest's Wikipedia page. Multiple Wikipedia pages (laughs) making this absurd claim. It's such a claim. And it's it's got a citation too, like the Rob Guest one has a citation, but obviously it's just dated. It's out of date, like, yeah. Anyway, so I don't I don't have one of those logins where you can go and edit Wikipedia because I don't think I should be able to edit information like <laughs> that is widely available to the public. But anyway, uh, Wikipedia is very important. Contribute to it. We love it. Yes. Et cetera. But thanks, Sharon. Yeah. Now, Ruth, do you have a spotlight? I do. Tell so um, this my spotlight this week is an article that was in the LA Times oh. and um, it is basically – 40 black playwrights, um, and we're talking more like straight theatre playwrights than musical theatre, but some of them have also written for musical theatre, so I thought it was still important. Yes. And it's 40 black playwrights telling their stories of racism in the industry, um, and it shows just sort of how universal the issues here, including how when works by black writers are presented, they're almost always like works about trauma or to make white people feel better about themselves. Uh, Like they're never just allowed to write about, you know, black folks living ordinarily lives or certainly anything joyful. Like basically that's the running theme through all of these 40 sort of stories that they tell. Um, And I particularly loved this quote from playwright Stacey Rose. Hmm. She said, that's at the crux of everything. The tastemakers do not live a black experience but still get to decide what is or isn't a black story. The people who greenlit things, greenlight things, don't understand us and aren't even willing to trust us to understand ourselves. I hope we're beginning to enter a time when those opinions and decisions can come from someone other than a white man sitting behind a desk. Yes. So in other words, like a lot of them told stories about how like these non-profits and whatever would would want to highlight a black author and then they would come to them and say here's what my play is about and they're like we just we don't know how we could market that we don't know yeah, it's not black enough and it's or... well yeah it's like they only want to tell a very specific sort of black story yes. as I said that was either one of trauma mm. or one of um 
yeah, like never like just ordinary lives. Yeah. Whereas they will tell those stories of white authors <clears throat> kind of, of thing. Of course. Yeah. So there's a similar thing in Australia. Like I'm at the moment with my uh, drama class, we are studying two plays, two contemporary Australian plays. And one of them is called Stolen by a playwright. His yeah. name is Jane Harrison. Yeah. And um, she's an Indigenous playwright, but that that play is specifically about sort of the impact of the stolen generation. Yeah. And one of my students actually did say, why is it that mm-hmm. most um, Indigenous theatre or that has in- Indigenous people as like primary sort of characters is about trauma? It's exactly right. Like why can't we just see normal experiences? Yep. And it's so fucking true. Yeah, it's so true. The same exact thing happens here. <sighs> so, yeah, I'm going to link to that article. It's really good. Um, just And sort of a wide variety of stories but all kind of – feeling like the crux of the same thing. And I think it's, again, a really similar message that we are getting in terms of um, the musical theatre industry, which is that it's not just about performers, it is about people behind the scenes need to be given these roles. In in this case, we're talking artistic directors, we're talking literary managers, you know, dramaturgs, like those sorts of people who will understand, like they need to be people of colour as well kind of thing. Like, mm. yeah, so uh, anyway, I'll link to that. It was yeah, um, so it true. was a really good article. Man, that's a good one. Uh, my spotlight today is thank you to my very dear friend Stacey who has been keeping me updated about NIDA. So I'm, I don't think it was last week, it was the week before last. Yeah. I spoke about the National Institute of Dramatic Art here in Australia who had come under fire for um, sort of their treatment of – BIPOC students and alumni and anyway. So Stacey let me know that NIDA had had gone on to like ABC to talk about how they are addressing the claims that systemic racism sort of underpins their entire practice. Yeah. I don't think this is by any stretch a finite response and it actually seems pretty lacklustre to me. Okay. Like I thought it was really, it was tokenism. But according to their website, they have a number of scholarships offered by external providers to study at NIDA. So... I like after she sort of let me know that they were talking about it I thought great like I'll pop onto the website and just have a look and see what they've done but all of the like the scholarships that they mention are offered by other other companies right like sponsored kind of so like YouTube have pledged um a hundred thousand US dollars which means like the the equivalent of one scholarship of approximately $44,000 Australian will be awarded each year for the next three years to a student from a background which has historically been underrepresented on screen and stage. So First Nations and people of colour, people with a disability from remote and regional areas or experiencing barriers to access are especially encouraged to apply. This is awesome, but it's coming from YouTube, not from NIDA. Um, there's, there are also three scholarships to NIDA offered by the um, ARA group, which is like a property company in Sydney to existing Indigenous students of NIDA. And these are great steps for sure, but it also feels like, okay. Yeah, surely that's A, a way for those companies to make themselves feel better about something. That's right. And nothing to do with NIDA, NIDA actually. No. But also, is well, I, I mean, my understanding from, you know, the article that you talked about previously was it was like, systemic issues that yes, just aren't being addressed and, here. That's yeah. right. And it, it wasn't necessarily, like obviously there is a, there's a serious problem with access to this, to this institute for like from a range of people, mm. but also like the feedback was that once you got into NIDA, people were really racist. Yeah, exactly. So like, are you addressing that problem? Yeah. So I, I don't know, it all felt a bit shit, but mm, anyway. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So, Bray, um, theatre explained. So this week we're talking a common theatre idiom. Oh. 
I love that word. Uh, break a leg. Break a leg. Yeah. What does it mean, Ruth? Well, it's what we say in theatre to wish someone good luck. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Do you know I found in my research the actual origin of this term is actually quite contentious. Yes. Like no one can really pinpoint yeah, where I know. it's come from. I have the same and I've got a list of things that aren't probably true but that could be true. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like it's actually probably not a theatrical term no. to begin with. That it was in aviation, right? Well, I actually heard it was in horse racing. Oh, yeah. I think I... Like in I jockey think, circles. Yeah, but then it like all moved into aviation after that. Yeah. And in Germany. Yes. So the term was a Yiddish term <laughs> that a German saying via Yiddish origin, Hals und Beinbruch. <laughs> and that like was great like... Great pronunciation. Thank you. And that that sort of moved from German aviation to German society at large. And then as early as the 1920s into the American or British and then American theatre. Um, but they think it was likely used in theatrical context in the 1930s or possibly 1920s. Yeah. Um, well, so my big question, though, is like obviously everyone is sort of, a, 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 what am I trying to say, obtusely aware that break a, le- break a leg is what you say instead of good luck. Yes, because good luck bad. is bad luck, Yeah, right? it's bad luck to say good luck. But why is it bad luck to say good luck? I know. Well, Again, this is, I couldn't, I couldn't get the answers I needed. Well, I mean, partly, obviously, it's just that, Theatre people theater are, are particularly superstitious. superstitious people. Yeah. But, um, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. just like it's accepted that you don't say good luck. So uh, do you want to hear some of the etymologies that aren't I correct but they, they think, you know, are sort of theories that people have? Yeah. So um, they think it could refer to the performer bowing. So the term break a leg may refer to a performer bowing or curtsying to the audience in the metaphorical sense of bending, oh, yeah, bending one's leg, leg yeah, to yeah. do so. Um, the performer breaking the leg line. So oh, the edge yeah. of a stage just beyond the vantage point of the audience forms a line imaginarily imaginary are actually marked and this can be referred to as the leg, leg line um so <laughs> and then like possibly alluding to david garrick so um uh, during a performance of shakespeare's richard iii the famed 18th century british actor david garrick became so entranced in the performance that he was supposedly unaware of a literal fracture in his leg um jesus the audience breaking legs various folk theories propose that elizabethan or even ancient greek theatrical audiences either stomped their literal legs or banged chair legs to express applause ah. and then finally alluding to john wilkes booth one popular but false etymology derives the phrase from the 1865 assassination of abraham lincoln, abraham lincoln during yeah. which john wilkes booth the actor turned assassin claimed in his diary that he broke his leg leaping to the stage of the ford's theater after murdering the president but it's not true that's but not true yeah, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Fascinating. So they're fun. I actually think breaking the leg line is the most interesting one for me. Yeah. And in fact, because I've already, I've laid out on our list of things to talk about in the future, the, I, I want us to talk about legs in the theatre and what that means is mm. one of our terms. So yeah. That's really well, interesting. Well, the interesting one with the leg line as well is that, so like in the days of vaudeville, um, for unpaid standby to for, performer to cross or break this line would mean that the performer was getting an opportunity to go on stage and be paid. Yeah. So that's like a good thing, right? Yeah, Therefore, you want to break a leg. break a leg shifted from a, you know, a specific hope for this outcome to a general hope for any performer's good luck. So in that sense, in that sort of interpretation, it's similar to chookers because it's like hoping for a good outcome. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And just becomes a, a general good luck term. Yeah. yeah. But they reckon that none of those are true, but yeah. still fun. It's fun. Yeah. So, yeah, if you have a theatre friend, you tell them to break a leg. Yeah. I love it. Do you have any recommendations for us? I do. I just have a couple of YouTube videos this week. Nice. Let's get basic. So the first one I'm linking to, I'm linking to because anytime it comes up like on Instagram or Twitter for me or whatever, it's an old video, but I just love this video, which is 
Tom Holland yeah. doing the lip sync battle of um, Umbrella by Rihanna. Yeah. And uh, Tom, I mean, it's vaguely musical theatre related because he played Billy Elliot on the West End. Um, but yeah, actor Tom Holland, it is just such a, it just is so joyful, this video. Yeah. I've always loved it. Yeah. So I'm linking to that because I just think it's wonderful. I rewatched I think, it again this week. I think the Emma Stone lip sync. Oh, yeah, is that the one's best. great and too. And that's theatrical because she was in uh, Cabaret. Um, Cabaret. So it's yeah. fine. But yeah, that one's really good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then my second one is during the commercial break of the 2019 Tony Awards when they were doing um, karaoke, like when James Corden hosted and in the, they were doing karaoke. Yeah. And Billy Porter does Everything's Coming Up Roses. Oh, my Just God. Just like completely on a whim kind of thing. As karaoke, yeah. Yeah. And, and it wasn't shown on the, on the show because it was like during a commercial break, but there's like – yeah, this clip from Fuck. James Corden show. And it's just so good. Well, it's Billy Corden. He gets Porter. on stage. He's, yeah. Shit. He got a standing ovation. Of course he did. Yeah. He's so good. It's wonderful. Oh, that's great. So those two videos were giving me joy this week. There's a video that you shared on our Instagram today that I just love. Wasn't that great? Oh, my God. So the video was like, it was like, um, what was it? A really dedicated actor versus an MD who wants to catch the early train. That's right. Fuck, so it was, it was just good. like basically like this one guy doing all these impressions of like famous musical theatre songs and then the musical director coming in really Too quick. Early. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. It was so funny. Yeah. Um, okay. My recommendations. Oh, so obliquely related to musical theatre. Yeah. It's not even funny anymore. Uh, last week in our, t- in our time, so a couple of weeks ago for you people listening, we watched the HBO Max West Wing special. <laughs> and so you may be thinking... Why is she recommending The West Wing on a musical theatre podcast? I have some very good reasons and I've listed them. Here we go. Firstly, the whole special is performed and filmed in the Orpheum Theatre in LA. It's it's on a stage. It's done as a play. It is so theatrical. It's wonderful. Yeah. Like I actually think all TV shows in the future should be filmed exactly like this. I think they should be written as plays and filmed just as beautifully including like lovely walking shots, not, yeah. not static shots. This, this is how we should be consuming all stuff in the future, yeah. I think. Um, secondly, Lin-Manuel Miranda is in it. He has a little guest appearance. And he is a theatrical person. And thirdly, it's just the West Wing, like just fucking watch it. Yeah. Oh, my God, I loved it so much. It's not like it's your favourite TV show in the world. No, I'm a completely unbiased <laughs> viewer in this sense like I was not coming into it with any any emotions attached to it no you didn't immediately start crying as soon as we start watching it and then continue to sob throughout the entire hour. I didn't have to be reminded by Ruth to have tissues with me I before literally was it started like, you might want to get tissues Josephine and I did need tissues <laughs> so lucky she had told me oh my god it was so good it was so good any opportunity to talk actually should we just should we just talk about the West Wing? I don't know enough about the West Wing to. Should you just f- listen to me talk about to the West segue Wing? Segue into a West Wing podcast, <laughs> I'm afraid. One already exists. In fact, just listen to the West Wing weekly. Weekly, it's a very good podcast. Excellent. Okay. Should we talk about some musicals? Yeah, Ruth, you're first this week, just like every other week. If you're listening for the first time, you might notice that Josephine's convinced that somehow I'm going first more than fifty percent of the time. Okay. Do you, can I tell you, our friend Jess? Yeah. She said to me the other day, she was like, okay, I also think Ruth goes first all the time. And it's just that she had, she'd not like listened for a while and she had to catch up quickly. So she was listening to a bunch of episodes in a row, but not chronologically. Yeah. So she listened to like three in a row where you happened to go first. Because <laughs> then she was like, uh, no, you are absolutely right, Josephine. Ruth is really doing dirty by you. Yeah. I mean, you're both wrong. So <laughs> let's get to it. <laughs> 
Tell me about a musical. I'm going to talk to you about a beautiful show. Right. Once on this island. Oh my gosh. Yes. Which we've briefly mentioned in other in other episodes, fleetingly. Oh, I love this musical. What a beautiful show. I'm so, actually surprised neither of us have spoken about this earlier. I know. It is it is such a gorgeous show. So I don't really remember my introduction to this show, yeah. but I assume it was through, you know, the Big I Want song in it, Waiting for Life, which I have been obsessed with for years. Yeah. And it includes one of my favourite key changes in musical theatre. You've definitely mentioned that before. Yeah. <laughs> when we um, put it, because we had it on a mixtape, we? did, didn't we? Didn't we? I yeah. think maybe on the mezzo-soprano mixtape I might have put yes, it on. I think yeah. so too. So the whole score is just so joyous and, like, incredibly infectious. Um, I had never seen it on stage until the Broadway revival a few years ago. I saw the Broadway revival in 2018 and I loved every second of that. And I just think it's really amazing because for a show that's very sad and heavy in many ways, it's also just some how such a celebration of life like I don't understand how a show that can be so emotional and sad and everything is somehow to me I think of it as so uplifting you know it is so joyous yeah um so it's a one-act musical with book and lyrics by Lynn Ahrens and music by Stephen Flaherty um we spoke about them in the Susical episode that's the only show of theirs that we've done isn't it yeah yeah so yes, far we haven't done ragtime, have yeah. We? yeah um it's based on the 1985 novel My Love My Love or The Peasant Girl by Rosa Guy which was a Caribbean retelling of The Little Mermaid um, and this comes very early on in Arons and Flaherty's career. It was their Broadway debut and it's their only sh- – the only show of theirs that predates it was the off-Broadway musical Lucky Stiff. Yeah, So nice. this is like early Arons and Flaherty kind yeah, of thing. Well, yeah, What did you say, 1990? 1990, yeah. So early. Yeah. Um, so some story – and this I'm, I'm going to get quite detailed with this because otherwise it's – you kind of have to. convoluted? Yeah. Um, so it is a story within a story. So we're in the French Antilles Islands and it's a stormy night um, and the storm is scaring a local girl, little girl. So the village storytellers tell her the story of Timoon to calm her down. And then that story, <laughs> we're on an island known as the Jewel of the Antilles, which four gods rule over. Asaka, mother of the earth, Agwe, god of water, Azuli, goddess of love, and Papage, demon of death. So when Timun was a baby there, the gods saved her life from this fierce storm and she's adopted by the peasants Mama Yuri and Tonton Julia. You, what you need to know is that the peasants have dark skin and they live on one side of the island and the, the grand homme, are the lighter-skinned descendants of the original French planters and their slaves, and they live on the other side of the island. Mm. So years later, a grown-up Tamoon prays to the gods to let her know her purpose and to let her be like the fast-driving strangers on the roads near her village, who are known as the Grand Dom, as I mentioned. Hearing her plea, the gods laugh at her. However, Azuli suggests that they give her love because it is stronger than any of the other elements. Offended, Papa Gay proposes a bet to prove which is stronger, love or death. Argway arranges for the car of Daniel Bozon, a young Grand Dom, to crash during a storm so that Tamoon may meet Daniel and restore him to health. When Papagay comes to take Daniel's life, Tamoon offers her own instead and Papagay vows to return to take it. Tamoon and Daniel fall in love, but Daniel has no intention of marrying her as he's been betrothed to Andrea, a family friend, since he was a child. Tamoon is heartbroken as Daniel and Andrea marry and touched by her selflessness and love, the gods give her a final kindness by letting her drown peacefully. 
I know. <laughs> Upon her death, Asaka to, transforms to Moon into a tree, which becomes a celebration of life and love that cracks open the gates of the hotel where Daniel's family live, allowing those of all social statuses to become one, including a peasant girl and a young grand homme, Daniel's son, as they play in, in her branches. As the years go by, the story of Tamoon is told again and again, passed down through generations as proof of the power of love and stories to bring people together. As the musical ends, the little girl who was frightened by the storm begins to retell the story herself. <laughs> Just making you cry over here. It's too much. It's too much, right? It's so beautiful. But how is it so uplifting? Like I know. But also, if you're going to do any version of The Little Mermaid, that's how the story should go. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like exactly. Like the other bullshit we've been fed. I know, exactly. So the original production opened off-Broadway at Playwrights Horizons um, and ran from May 6th to May 27th, 1990. It then transfers to Broadway and opens at the Booth Theatre on October 18th, 1990, running until December 1st, 1990 and playing 488 performances total. Not so bad. Fa- fairly successful, yeah. yeah. Um, the original Broadway production was nominated for eight Tony Awards but sadly didn't win any. Oh. We've actually talked about the 1991 Tonys before. Yes, we have. Um, it was the year that Once on This Island, Miss Saigon and The Secret Garden all lost the best musical Tony to the Will Rogers Follies. <laughs> um, Will Rogers Follies also won best score against the same three shows and it won six Tony Awards in total. What was going on that? Yes. I, I like don't know, gas leak. I, I just I just always find it so fascinating what lives on and what doesn't. I know. Like all three of those other shows are still quite successful. Yes. Yes. Fascinating. Um, the musical then makes its West End debut in 1994 at the Peacock Theatre and it won Best New Musical at the Olivier Awards. Yeah. Um, and then comes the Broadway revival that I mentioned that I saw a few years ago, which opened at Circle in the Square Theatre on November 9th, 2017, and ran until January 6th, 2019, playing 458 performances. That production was directed by Michael Ardern, who we've discussed several times on this podcast. We love him. We do. Um, uh, it starred Hayley Kilgore as Tamoon in her Broadway debut, and we've actually discussed Michael Kilgore, her brother, um, before in the Songs for New World episode. I'm pretty sure we talked about him, right? Yeah, we did. Um, he's, he was in that revival of Songs for New World. Uh, it also starred Isaac Cole Powell as Daniel, who went on to play Tony in the West Side revival that was playing on Broadway when COVID hit, and, of course, beautiful Leia Salonga, who played Az- Azuli. Um, most significantly in my opinion it subverted the gender expectations of two of the god roles um because uh, like and of course it makes so much sense because like why should the gods be gendered like it you know it's just like they're fucking gods like who cares you know so asaka was played by alex newell who firstly was was robbed of a tony nomination for that for that show the fact that he wasn't even nominated it's ridiculous i know Mm. um and so alex is gender fluid um but uses male pronouns um and but Asaka was very much played as a cis woman. Like yes. that was the intention of, of the, the – and, and he was incredible. Like yeah, he was he amazing. Was incredible. And then so interestingly like Papa Gay was – which was originally played by a man, like in the original production, in this case was played by actress Merle Dan- Dandridge. Oh, nice. And again – played as a cis female, like yeah. not played as a man kind of thing. Well, it doesn't have to be. No, but also like that fully added another layer of complexity to this idea like of death being female rather yes. than male. So much more interesting yes. than just our sort of normally what we would say of just like, oh, it's an evil man being yes. death. We just had that like maternal element. Exactly. Mm. And just so much about, you know, Papa Gay like also kind of looking out for her 
in a different way than I think. Like before it was just like, oh, that's just the evil one. And yeah. I just think her, the way that but like life they played is nuanced it. And, yes. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. So it was just, it just was so much deeper than, yeah. than it was previously, I think. Yeah. So that revival was nominated for eight Tony Awards and won only one, but it was Best Revival. Best Revival. Of, best yeah. Revival of Musical, so a big yeah. deal. Um, the national tour of that revival only got to run around four months before COVID shut it down, it's like so got, had it cancelled. But I did want to mention it because, of course, they had to perform in proscenium houses. But uh, when, isn't it a thrust performance? Well, the production on Centre of the Stage was basically, it was in the round. Yeah. So, like, um, they had... For the like for the tour, they had on stage seating and because um, did you say it was in circle in the square? Yeah, yeah, which is, which is uh, depending how you set it up, basically well, it could in the be round. arena or in the round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, wow. pretty much everything I've seen there. There's there's only really been like a they've blocked off an entrance and that's it. Yeah, right. But which is basically in the round, almost, like ninety percent yeah. of a circle yeah, kind yeah. of thing. So yeah, so they um, I think they still wanted to sort of get that atmosphere so they still put like some audience on stage they still had like so that revival had like sand on stage and water and all these it was very like animals yeah yeah I'm gonna talk about them I'll mention them now actually so the um the animals they had a live goat um whose name was Sparky oh Sparky as well as three live chickens who were called Effie Dina and Laurel i.e the names of the dream girls that's amazing isn't that amazing yes. yeah so yeah live animals on stage like i think they were i think they cooked food at some point yeah it was like yeah, very like fire and the, and the actors were all on stage before the show started yeah. just sort of i think it was like there. there's like a bunch of trash on stage and they're all kind of cleaning it up like yeah. there's been this big storm so they're all kind of cleaning the town up kind of thing um and then, of course, we've discussed this before as part of a spotlight, but excitingly on July 30th, 2020, it was announced that Walt Disney Pictures and producer Mark Platt bought the film rights to adapt Once on This Island into a feature film for Disney+. Plus. Yeah, and bitches. Yeah, yeah. Playwright Jocelyn Bio will pen the script and Wanuri Kahu will direct. So that's really exciting. That's so exciting. Yeah. Good um, on your Disney+, Plus, even though you're a terrible multinational conglomerate. <laughs> <laughs> so Lynn Irons has commented on the show that it's the only show of theirs that she thinks doesn't need any more work. Aww. She thinks that she thinks all of the others says things she could change, but that she sort of feels like is. I actually have a, I disagree with that. Oh really? Yeah. What else do you think is perfect? The, no, no, no. I think there's something that needs to be oh, changed really? about this show. There's a song that was cut very early on that I think is the best song of the whole really? show. And, it, and it's, it's just not in the show. Oh, interesting. Um, and I think that is a mistake. But do you think that was about like kill your darlings? Like maybe the, maybe it wasn't serving the story. Maybe. Although like I, I think it does. Okay. <laughs> what character sings it? Um, uh, the mother, like uh, Mama. Oh, Asaka. Asaka, yeah. yeah. Asaka sings it. Okay. It's called Come Down From This Tree. Oh, I, maybe I have heard that before. It's so, like, it's just. Is it on YouTube? Yeah. Okay. Oh, my God, it just started, like, pouring rain. It did just start pouring rain. It's um, all right. They won't be able to hear it because of the amazing soundproofing in the studio. We hope. We hope. <laughs> anyway, but I'm sure Lynn would know more about her show than I do. <laughs> I think you should send her a letter. <laughs> Um, we've previously spoken about the amazing choreographer of the revival, Camille Brown. Yeah. But I also want to mention the director slash choreographer, choreographer of the original production, Graziella Danielle, who is also an incredible artist. And I'm sure yeah. actually, I don't think we've talked about one of her shows before so far, but I'm sure we will because, for example, she was a frequent collaborator of Arons and Flaherty. Oh, wow. Um, and so she's actually like an incredible artist. She's been nominated for 10 Tony Awards. She sadly never won. Shit. Um, and, but 
she also like wrote a show, her Broadway show herself, the 1995 Broadway dance musical Chronicle of a Death Foretold. Like, Imagine being that talented. Right, just like such a broad kind of skill set. Anyway, I just think she's incredible and was obviously like a pioneering female director, choreographer at a time when that wasn't probably that common. She's got the same birthday as my sister. Oh, well, that's a fact. Although she was born in 1939 and my sister was not born in 1939. (laughs) Um, The West End Theatre that held the original production led me down a little rabbit hole because I'd never heard of it before. And, And like having lived there and like, gone to most of the theatres there, I was like, what is this West End Theatre I haven't heard of? So <laughs> I discovered that the Peacock Theatre is most noted as the home of one of the West End's most unusual ghosts. Yes, a dolphin commonly known as Flipper. An urban myth has grown up that during what? one of Paul Redmond's, Raymond's reviews at the theatre in the 1970s, a dolphin was kept in the tank beneath the stage where it lived permanently and later died from neglect. In fact, this is not true. Two dolphins named Penny and Pixie were indeed kept in a tank at the theatre for three months for a show called The Royalty Follies, which was later renamed The Great International Nude Show. However, neither of these animals died while at the theatre and at the close of the show, the animals were moved to a dolphinarium in the East Asia. <laughs> It's the most random story. Anyway, the reason I haven't heard of it is that it's mostly used by Sadler's Wells Dance Company and I've oh, never right, seen yeah. any of their shows. Oh, that's bad. Um, and during the day it's a lecture theatre for the London School of Economics. So no wonder I hadn't heard of it really. Wow. Um, there's. I want to talk about a couple of like key sort of issues in the show. There doesn't seem to be... Interestingly, there doesn't seem to be a lot of criticism about the fact that this show is written by white writers about the experiences of people of colour. Yeah. And I think that that is because it's so, like, sort of folkloric. Like, they're not talking to an African-American experience, for example. But, like, um, yeah, like, the, I feel like that saved yes. them a bit. Yes. In a way. Um uh, and I think that it's really great that for the film that they've hired, like, a uh, like a black um, screen, I like to add adapt it yeah. for the screen, and the director is an African woman. Yes. Um, I think that's really important. But I, I just think it's really interesting that it's, like, most people – I mean, Graziella Danielle is a person of colour, like the original director, choreographer. Is she Argentinian? Yeah. Yeah. But obviously Michael Arden isn't, you know. Right. So there's, like – and but then, you know, like, obviously people involved have been. But, yeah, I just think it's interesting that – of a lot of shows that do get criticised for these things, yeah. this one some, somewhat seems to escape. And I think it is because it's not set in modern times maybe or something like that. I yeah. don't know. There's just like an interesting element yeah. of it that it feels like they've escaped that criticism for some reason. Interesting. And like, it, do you like, think also because it is a, it's a really well-done sensitive Possibly. Story. And like also it's... because I think the casting has always been very true. Yes. Um, And especially, like, I would say in that Broadway revival, like, it wasn't even, you know, for example, someone like Leia Salonga is is a Filipino woman. Like, it's a very diverse kind of... um, Well, yeah, it's not like they've tried to whitewash the story. Exactly. So, yeah, anyway, I just think it's an interesting thing to look at. But, I mean, it's worth commenting that the majority of Broadway creative teams are just white. Yeah, exactly. And so, so like, I do think it's an issue that they've written the show. Like I do think it's an issue that these two white people have written this story that is – and music that is not really true, you know, to their um, real backgrounds kind of thing. Like they are not from the Caribbean. Yeah. But then I also go, well, it exists now. We can't change that. Yeah. Let's do what we can for future productions so that it is as inclusive as possible. I guess that's all we can ask for. Yeah. 
It's such a I, – I know some people are probably sitting there like, well, what, you just talked earlier in the episode about how, you know, black theatre shouldn't just be about black issues. Yeah. And it's so true but I just feel like when the shoe was on the other foot, yeah, like – uh, wh- white white writers and creators have had enough. Like they don't yeah. need to take other people's stories. That's as well. exactly right. They can just write their own stuff, please. And also, I think the thing is, like, let's say, let's take a show like Flower Drum Song or Miss Saigon or like yeah. a lot of these sort of um, shows that traditionally have been written, written by these white writers of experiences of people of color. Mm. And it's like they're also like literally sort of talking to stories that they have no idea about. Yeah, and uh, like there's like a bit of a white saviour thing going on. Like there's all these things that just Definitely. don't exist in this show. Definitely, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so there's some interesting things. I also think it's interesting because it's a rare story of colourism. So mm. like, you know, racism within people of colour, like in this case, like the darker skin versus the like lighter skinned, yeah. um, you know, uh, citizens of this island yeah. basically, which is a very rare story to be told. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. in musical theatre in particular. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, of course that leads us to the fact that it is often done by schools mm, and performed by right. pretty much all white schools. Yeah. Um, there is a note in the libretto, if you license the show, mm. it says, Once on this island is based on the cultural, religious and racial divisions found in Haiti between the mulatto ruling class. And a side note to say that mulatto is a very outdated term. It, oh. it's, still in the, um, it's still in the libretto now, but it, it was quite a common term to refer to someone as mixed race. Um, I'm just quoting it verbatim, but that isn't a term you would use anymore. Yeah. Um, uh, so it is between the mulatto ruling class and the dark-skinned rural pre- peasants. Our original production in New York was strictly cl- cast along these racial lines and the text makes reference in several places to skin colour. However, since the story also transcends the issue of race and there have been many wonderful multiracial amateur productions, we've supplied several specific text alterations which, if need be, will allow greater flexibility in making casting choices while still maintaining the core ideas of prejudice and the separation of people because of their differences. Um, oh, I, I think know. unless you can have I don't like at that. least to moon and her family be portrayed by people of color, then you're performing erasure as to the real story being told. Yeah. If you can only cast white people, then there are just so many other shows to be done. That's my 100%. personal opinion. Hundred percent. Um, I, I think you could, you know, say like the gods wouldn't necessarily have to be like, you know what I mean? But like yeah. if, yeah, I just, please don't. Well, do this show as all white. Like I don't even, yeah, because I think let, why do we, I can't even articulate this, but I think that, yeah, this, this story is so much about race. Yeah. So let's not, not make it about race. Exactly. Mm. And as we always say, like white people have enough stories to go tell so one of those. Many, so many yeah. other stories. Like just go do Carousel again. I have, I have read lots of things online about say they use it as like, a, like in schools they would then do a whole unit on Haiti as a country and, yeah. you know, like using it as a learning tool for that. And I think that's all great, but I still, yeah, it still worries me. Yeah, but even if it was educational, it's very self-serving to be performing a musical. Exactly, like, exactly. You didn't have to do that. Um, I also learn. just want to mention the way that the show deals with death. So, like, mm. it's a pretty dark topic, but this show also heavily explores the concept of death and how it is just – a part of our stories rather than something we should be afraid of. Yeah. And I've actually, I was really musing a lot on this all week, but I've been thinking a lot about our kind of Western capitalist ideas of death and how we're also scared of dying young. Yeah. It's so which, at, yeah. Which I assume is to do with this sort of never ending 
the never ending grind and like reaching our demise before retirement age when we can sort of really revel in the fruits of our labor. Like just that sort of capitalistic society where it's just all about getting to the stage where, you know, and like not wanting to to die before that happens basically and how so many other cultures just don't see it that way. No. Um, And so I, I think that's a really important message in it as well. I think any discussions about death are so important. Yes. Like we should be normalising talking about death. I agree. I agree. And even just that it's like, you know, Tamoon goes on to be a tree and like that, you know, is this bigger thing because of still who she was, you know. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be some sort of like mythical heaven state. And then it's all about like the cyclical nature of people. And And it's more about earth. It's more about here. Yeah. Yeah. Not some sort of like other plane. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm all about that. um, So some uh, recordings and, and um, gateway songs and everything. So I do want to mention the documentary after the storm, um, which I couldn't find anywhere, but um, definitely seek it out if you can. I think if nothing else, it'll be available on DVD. Um, it is about a group of actors who travelled to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina to um, put on a production of Once on This Island with local teenagers. Lovely. Like in the aftermath of – and they made a documentary about it. Um, and I will link to the – so the original Broadway cast is not on Spotify, but it is on YouTube. So I have that CD if anyone wants to yeah. borrow it. <laughs> I think I do too. <laughs> I think I have the sheet music as well. Yeah, I think I do too. Um I will link to that on through YouTube and the Broadway revival is on Spotify, so I will link to that as well. And then so some gateway songs. So this was hard. Oh, yeah. So I've she, gone yeah. for Waiting for Life, one of my favourite songs in the world, That's the I Want good, song at the beginning that Tamoon sings. One, yeah. um, I've gone for Mama Will Provide that Asaka sings and Alex, Alex Newell sings it. the shit out of. Yeah, Jesus. And then I've actually gone for The Human Heart, oh, nice. which is the beautiful song that, um, Azuli Lea Salonga in the Broadway revival sings um, when she is sort of bestowing love onto yes. Tamoon and Daniel. Um, it was a it was a toss up between that and I also love the finale. Why we tell the story? I think that that one's a beautiful. I mean, there's so many, isn't there? But so um, many. I'm also I'm gonna jump it like I'm gonna shoehorn myself into your gateway list okay. and put Audrey McDonald has recorded for one of her albums yep. Come Down from the Tree. Okay. And I want I want everyone to listen to All it. All right, we'll add that to the so gateway. Beautiful. Yeah. I'm gonna add oh, it. Oh, right which album is it on? Um, I will tell you it is on How Glory Goes. Oh, I have that album. Okay. Maybe I've heard it and hadn't realized that it was from Once on this probably, Island. Probably, yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's the show. Oh, that's a good one. I love this show. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, good work, Ruthie. Thanks, babe. Ah, do you want me to talk now? I certainly do. Do you know I think I'm, like, my nose is blocked. Okay. Like, am I getting sick? Do you want to just blow your nose into the microphone? Everyone will love that. Yeah, how do you guys feel about that? Yeah. No, I, I like, it's blocked in a way that I know I won't be able to blow it. Do you just like- riveting content here, isn't it? Guys, this is why you, you've stuck around. Well, <laughs> stick around longer. Okay, all right. I'm going to tell you about a musical. I want to talk about Big Fish. Mm-hmm. So Ruth doesn't like this musical. Well, I wouldn't go that far. Okay, I'm just going to – I feel incredibly passionate about this musical in a way that I've spoken about a couple of shows along, along our journey, our 28-episode journey that have – really stuck with me emotionally and spiritually. Yeah. Sunday the Park with George is definitely one of them. Yeah. Like I will always have a connection with that. This show is one of them too. Yeah. I feel uh, inextricably linked to it 
through my soul. Like Certainly it, um, both Once Upon a Island and Big Fish really fucking ask some big questions, big don't questions. they? Yeah. And w- when I when I realised you were doing Once on This Island, I was like, oh, that's the perfect this, marriage. This is a deep two. episode. Yeah. yeah, it's so deep, man. Like, yeah. And I think I don't really know if it was just like a this like great confluence of events that I was just feeling a particular way when I happened to see it mm. that it just it struck me in such a way. Yeah. Uh, anyway, well, I'll, I know I'll talk about that more. You'll, you'll talk about that production that you saw, but I know a lot of our friends saw that same production and had the same reaction. Yes, yeah. And well, it, we walked out of it because I, I took my husband to see it because a, a really good friend of mine directed this particular production, which I will talk about later. Mm. And Shane said to me, I want to buy a ticket for every person I know. Yeah. And I want every person I know to come and see this yeah. and have this experience. Yeah. And I actually do think everyone I spoke to who saw that production it, it's like we had this collective awakening yeah <laughs> like it was it, it was like it, it's spiritual it's so interesting because you know the reason that I sort of feel the way I do is so Andrew and I saw the very first preview on yeah. Broadway the very first one yeah. and I'm going to talk about why I think you feel the yeah, way you feel yeah but tell me and I mean, I personally think that just that Broadway production had a lot of issues mm-hmm. and I think that that – I mean, when that is your first introduction to something – you cannot change. And I still appreciated aspects of that production, don't get yeah. me wrong. And I – you know, for me, I like collect first Broadway previews if I can. Like yeah. it's yeah. a really like awesome thing to do. Yeah. Um, and it was lovely and like Norbert Leo Butts like worked his hardest, yeah. don't get me wrong. He, he was did. incredible. But then, of course, when we then saw the Hayes production that that you'll talk about, like it was beautiful, yeah. and I, and and I had a much more of an appreciation for the show after yeah. seeing it. But all you can do is compare it, no, that's you know, right. like that's right. and so that's what I was thinking about the whole time. It's it's so funny because the way I feel about it, like I can I can objectively see, you know, what you're saying is totally valid. But for me, this show. It just doesn't deserve the way that you feel about yeah. it. Like it really, in a way that I'm, I'm happy to relinquish any other show if you disagree about it, whatever. But yeah. this, this show, it no, like Too it, should, it should be revered. Mm. So let me talk about it. Big Fish. It's a 2013 book musical with music by Andrew Lipper and um, libretto by John August. So, like I've just said, I've sort of been. I put this musical on my list like at the very beginning yeah. and I've been sitting and ruminating on why and I think I actually think it's a cop-out that I'm talking about it now. Not that I'm suggesting that the order of these musicals is the order of the amount that no, I love them. No, like I don't feel that way either. No, if we if, if every episode was just like this is my next favourite, then this musical would have been way up the top. Like you would have had it And also it like it ago. just would have been all Sondheim for like the first well, six episodes. Well, that's so true. Um, it's responsible. This musical, I think, is responsible for it's the most transformative magical live theatre experience I've wow. ever had in my life. Yeah. Ever. Just bar none. And like I've seen a lot of good shit, but this is this is the the only time I've ever walked out of a theatre and felt changed. Mm. Um I was vaguely aware of the show, you know, before I saw it, but I saw it in 2017 at the Hayes Theatre in Sydney and I just never, ever felt the way I did that night. I I will never forget that production. But, yeah, I think this show is magic. So the plot. The story shifts between two timelines. So in the present day sort of real world, there's a 60-year-old man, his name's Edward Bloom, who is facing his mortality. Um, He has cancer. 
and his son Will prepares to become a father himself. So his son's sort of married to this woman named Josephine and he's about to become a father. Um, In the past, Edward ages from a teenager and as he ages he encounters a witch, a giant, a mermaid, he meets the love of his life, Sandra, and all of these stories sort of meet as Will discovers that his father throughout his entire childhood had been telling him these tall tales that like that he just sort of didn't respect and like his, his father had been weaving these what Will interpreted as lies and, and as, he, as they sort of come to Ed, the end of Edward's life, Will sort of realises that actually his father was, you know, everything had a meaning or maybe a purpose and yeah. human, com- human relationships are really complicated. Um, there's a lot of tension between father and son and it's really a story about a father and a yeah. son that's the the primary purpose. Um, yeah, because Will really believes that all the fairy tale stories his father has been telling are just gratuitous lies. And then when Edward actually dies, Will is sort of amazed to learn that all of the stories were grounded in truth. Yeah. Um, his father was just a really wonderful storyteller who sort of reveled in in telling these tales about his life. Mm. Um, and I think that's a, like such an oversimplification of the plot and the main themes, but it's really about family and death and sort of like how you how you derive pleasure from your life. Yeah. Like that's sort of what I Yeah. Um because okay. it turned Will quite um well, like completely, cynical and yeah. like neurotic kind of like yeah. yeah. It, like it really damaged him, I think, yeah. that his father sort of spent his whole childhood telling these tales that he assumed were lies and then he became, yeah, quite yeah, neurotic and really cynical and, yeah, and sort like, of like negative. Yeah. Yeah. And so you sort of see this man who's about to become a father really had this revelation at the end of the show just mm. about like, well, yeah, that, that was my father and, and you know, maybe he had a really good reason for telling the to- yeah. stories he did. Yeah. And I don't know, I think it's such a – having a father is such a universal experience. Yeah. Not that everyone has a father but um, having a relationship with a parent, a parent figure is a really – Yeah. And that's what this show is really about. Yeah. Um, so – Background. The story is based on the 1998 book Big Fish, a novel of epic proportions by Daniel Wallace and then the subsequent 2003 film by Tim Burton. The film, do you like the film? I, I, you know, it's funny. I definitely saw it at the time because it was Ewan McGregor yeah. and I was obsessed with Ewan McGregor. Was. Oh, it's true. I still am. But <laughs> I'm not at the stage where I would go and see every single thing he's in, whereas then I you hunted down every single thing he'd every ever done. Every scrap of content. Yeah. Um, so I remember like liking it but not loving it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. So yeah, I mean it it was it's Tim Burton, so it's definitely a particular flavor of film. Yeah. And like Ruth said, it had Ewan McGregor in it. So the film actually was originally going to be directed by Spielberg. Oh. And it was going to star Jack Nicholson. Oh. Okay. And thank fuck that didn't happen. Yeah. So Tim Burton ended up directing it. And interestingly, like he had, I think it was only just sort of months before the film started filming, he'd lost his father. Oh, wow. So it was this really sort of timely, personal, yeah, personal yeah. Um, thing for him. It starred Albert Finney and Ewan McGregor as Edward Bloom. So obviously yeah. the story has like the older Edward Bloom and then the younger. And in the, in the film, it's played by two different actors. In the musical, it's not. It's played by the one person. It's played by, yeah. by the one person. Um, John August, who wrote the screenplay for the film, originally actually thought that the story lent itself much better to a musical than to a film. Mm. And I've watched like quite a few interviews with him where he was like, as soon as I read the story, I could hear the characters singing. Mm. Like I just knew that the characters had to sing. 
And so, I mean, he wrote the screenplay for the film. It's not a musical film, obviously, but he then very quickly was interested in developing a musical. So he, I, I, I believe what happened was the producers of the film knew that John August thought there should be a musical and was interested in writing the, yeah. like the stage play. And they sort of had Andrew Lipper as like a, on their short list of yeah. composers who would suit the story. Yeah. And Andrew Lipper loved the film. So they got together and they, you know, they wrote a couple of songs together mm. and then presented it to the producers who were like, yep, yeah, great go. What is interesting is that it took, John August and Andrew Lipper nine years to develop the show. Yeah, wow. Which is, I mean, you can't put a time on creation, right? But that's quite a long. It is. It's a yeah. long time. The book of the musical actually retained less than five percent of the dialogue from the film. Yeah. And I was thinking about that because John August had obviously adapted the novel into the screenplay for the film, and then had adapted that further onto a stage play. And for him to have been so close to something, you know, close enough to write a script. To then go off and actually like throw out most of that, yeah, it's quite amazing. Yeah, that don't you is. Reckon? Yeah. So like to have it be only yeah five percent similarity with the film is really yeah. Hmm. That's just a lack of actual dialogue that's taken. Anyway. Yeah. Okay, so the musical itself it opened for out of town tryouts in Chicago in April two thousand and thirteen, and it had a cracking cast. Norbert Leo Butts as Edward Bloom, just incredible. Oh, right. Love him. Love him. I want to talk about him more. Um, Kate Baldwin played Sandra. Beautiful, beautiful beautiful voice. Beautiful voice. Um, Bobby Steggett was Will. Yeah. And Crystal Joy Brown as Josephine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So just great cast. It was directed and choreographed by Susan Stroman, who's just a bit of a visionary. Yeah. Really. Producers. Yeah, the producers. Yeah. Oh, what else? There's She's done. Lo- she did a lot of dance shows over yeah. the years, like lots of showy, spectacular yes. shows. Yeah, and that's my main yeah. problem with this. So the show then opened on Broadway at the Neil Simon Theatre in September 2013, and it closed in December after 34 previews and 98 performances. Oh, yeah. Which is just a, it was a flop. That's a proper flop. Yeah, you can go like on Broadway um, Broadwayworld.com. You can go on and see like gross yeah. like per week and this like it was at capacity the opening week and that is it That's like everything it, yeah. else it was like 60 percent at yeah. best 30 percent like just bad 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 this poor show so it didn't perform very well the theater was never really at capacity it's a shame but also sort of what that production deserved yeah like i, d- I don't think anyone was unfair on it i think that's what had to happen so that production was also completely snubbed by the 2014 Tony Awards. Didn't get anything? Yeah, nothing. Yeah. So even the score wasn't nominated and the score is now sort of widely considered to be quite a great score. Yeah. Um, I think the score deserved to be nominated. Yeah. Interestingly, that was the Tony season of A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Yeah, which actually I would say that wasn't a particularly strong year. Well, interestingly, there were like I think there was something like 14 eligible musicals that right. year, which is a lot of new it musicals is, yeah. for a season. But that was the year of like uh, I think it was like Bridges, Beautiful. Um, yeah, right. Lots of things that, that didn't necessarily. No, like no big standouts. Yeah, like because Bridges didn't do very well. No. Um, Gentlemen's Guide did, Madison but County. they just got really lucky I think with the timing and everything and their Tony's yeah. campaign. Well, that's an interesting one now too because like that one best musical but, I mean, do people talk about it now? It's hard or? to do and it would be well, hard yeah, to do. it would be really hard. So yeah. 
It's an interesting one though. Like considering the shows that we've talked about in the past that have that have been nominated or have even won Tonys, it's a it's a bit of a stretch to say this didn't get any nominations. Yeah. Particularly knowing how Norbert Leo Butts performed, mm. he didn't get a nomination. No. Mm. I think that's a bit it's, shit. That's the Tony Awards for you. Yeah. Yeah. So Andrew Lipper was nominated for a Drama Desk Award for Best Original Score. Oh, that's a good. A JRB won, though, for Bridges, Bridges of Madison County. And, of course, Jason Robert Brown should always win. <laughs> um, the show has since had a regional US tour. It opened in London in 2017 at starring Kelsey Grammer. Oh. And that performance ran for two months. In fact, because as soon as I saw that, like, Kelsey Grammer as Edward Bloom, I was like, oh, no. Incorrect. But vocally that worries me. Well, and so weird, right? All of the reviews are like Kelsey Grammer holds the show together. I'm like, well, it can't be that good if Kelsey Grammer is holding it together. And yeah. I love Kelsey Grammer. Yeah. But it, it's quite a demanding vocal. Yeah. Like vocals sing. Normally a bus has like it's one tautology. of the most incredible voices. Yeah, and it is put to the test in yeah. the show. So how could Kelsey – anyway. Interesting. Yes. Okay, let's talk about the 12-chair version. Okay. So – Lipper and August restructured the show to suit smaller venues and smaller casts. And I also think, although this is this is completely me just coming up with shit off the top of my head, I think a lot of the feedback they would have got is that the production, the Broadway production was too big. Yeah. It was just too much of a spectacle. There were too many people on stage. It was too showy and it didn't focus enough on the family drama element of yeah. and, and the actual core issues. So I think they say that they just wanted to restructure it for small venues. I think they had to. Like yeah. I think if, the, if they wanted any future with the show, it had to be restructured. So theatrical rights worldwide have licensed that 12-chair version and I believe that is exactly what the show needed. Um, some people don't agree with me actually. Like I read a oh. lot of reviews and like blog posts about how the 12-chair version is shit compared to the original. And I just – I actually what I think about that um, is that those people just like spectacle in mm. a show. Like they're going to like spectacle no matter what kind exactly. of thing. I've paid my money. I want to get yeah, lots of I stuff on stage. Yeah, I want to see lots of ensemble numbers and lots of things happening. Yeah. So maybe that's what they well, – I mean I'm once again just posturing. But I think that by scaling it back and rearranging some of the songs plus replacing some of the songs, the focus becomes so much more on the family rather than all the fantastical stories that Edward tells. And what I think the Broadway production did more was just making it like really flashy and all about the lies that mm. he told without actually really focusing on, well, why was he doing that or what's the what's the family story going on behind here? I have here? a slightly different opinion. Tell me. Which is that so I think that, sometimes people run into this trap with theatre yeah. is that with film, obviously you can show whatever you want, right? Yes. Like if you have the budget, you can show, you know, phantasmical things, yes. right? And uh, the problem with the Broadway show is that because he was, you know, imagining all these big, you know, these lies, yeah. you can't show them to the extent that you need to. Yeah. So instead you need to do it stripped down and have it be in people's imaginations. Yes. And that's what the 12 chair production achieves really well. So yeah. I think of some of my favourite theatrical experiences like Peter and the Starcatcher and yeah. shows like this where it's all about like it's almost inference. using like found objects and things like that to in people's minds yeah. create that imaginary world yeah. just works so much better, yeah. you know, than well, that, that, that colour purple revival like yeah. is a perfect example. I don't think that's a different – like a, that's exactly what I was saying. Yeah, but, but it wasn't so much – the problem with the original Broadway is that it's just like – 
it's like here is here's some glitter and here are like waves yeah. of like here is a mermaid wearing a mermaid costume and there is no inference. It's yeah. all like just shoved down your throat. All I would say is like having seen both productions, I didn't feel like they necessarily went, we need to focus more on the family. It was more like like I didn't feel that story necessarily more in one than the other. Interesting. It was just that for me you they were able failed to it a lot more in the first production. Like they focused on those things. Yeah. And, yes, yeah, so I guess in taking away that maybe it felt that way but mm. content like certainly content wise I didn't feel like well, they were that different interestingly there was not much of it there's not much of a yeah. difference in terms of the actual show yeah except that it's scaled back and you cannot have yes you just can't have that full like representation of the lies so yeah. I think by taking that away by taking away the spectacle element yeah it's about allow what the, the show audience is really about to, yeah you allow yeah. them the space to actually consider what it's about yeah yeah so yeah I don't think it's like no huge dramatic changes mm. it's just about creating an experience for the audience is actually a bit more meaningful and it's really interesting because i wonder how much of it is they could never have sold that version no, to broadway, broadway. producers yeah. and say we're doing this small broadway show yeah. where people have to think of yeah you know i wonder too because the producers of the broadway show were the producers of the film mm. and i just wonder how much yeah how much they just didn't understand a theatrical audience yeah or what an, a theatrical audience needs yeah so, I don't know. It's also hard because, like, Broadway shows are a, they're just a different animal to That's the right. sort of theatrical experiences that I prefer. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. But I I do, yeah, I do very much feel like the 12-chair version just gives gives that space needed. Yeah. Um, okay, so I obviously didn't see it on Broadway, but I'm really comfortable talking about the issues with the show and why it closed so early. It was generally received quite well from critics. Like they just thought it was okay. Like yeah. every and and overwhelmingly they were like Norbert Leo Butts is an absolute yeah. vision. Yeah. Um he was universally loved in his role, but apparently he was just sort of like head and shoulders above everyone else yeah, on stage. I would agree with that. Yeah. But also like he was carrying the show. Also, like that character is that character. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's a, and I think Oh, I I can see what would have happened. He would like his energy just would have been like sh- like just way above everyone. Yeah. But that is that character as well. Mm, so, but it's maybe that's a an actual problem with the show. Yeah. Like maybe you can't have a character who is that much more than everyone yeah. else. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that one. Um, I think there are some problems with the score and obviously with the spectacle, like I've said, um, there are like some absolutely beautiful songs Mm. in this show, but I think at times it feels like a little bit naff. Okay. And I think if you're listening to that score and it's paired with colour and glitter and pizzazz on stage, it will feel like you are maybe watching a children's show. Yeah, right. Like I think at times it could feel like Susical. Yeah, right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that is the problem. Like a bit presentational. Yeah, and, and yeah. I think if you if you have that score but with a paired back vision, yeah. then it becomes a lot more meaningful. Yeah, yeah. Um, once again, because I haven't seen it, maybe you have a different opinion, but yeah. No, I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I think like now that I've I've seen the twelve chair production, it works so beautifully. I think it just needs to be stripped back. Yeah, and that's the trick for this show. Um, the twelve chair, yeah. So I want to talk about the actual production I saw. So I think if you didn't if you didn't connect with with Big Fish or you, it's just not really your thing, I think you just need to see a twelve chair production. Yeah. Like I don't I don't think I don't I mean you're not going to see anything at the moment, but yeah. Don't really go and seek out Broadway content for yes. this show. 
Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this – the it's, production – It's a truer reflection of what the show should be. It is. Yeah. It really is. So the production that I saw um, was, yeah, the Hayes Theatre, which we've spoken about so often. Yeah. And it was directed by Tyron Park and it was just like the cast were flawless. Yeah. Oh, what was the name of the guy who played Edward? Because his voice was so beautiful. Yeah. I can't remember. But it was just like – and it was in a tiny, tiny theatre. So all of that sort of like – fantastical stuff had to be quite contained. Yes. And it was still magic. Like there was still a lot of magic in the show. But Again, theatre magic. Though. It was theatre magic. Yeah. That's right. It wasn't like here is a mermaid. It was just, yeah. Yeah. It was just so beautifully done. And because because it's tw- there's only 12 actors, a lot of the characters have to double up. So like – you see the witch come out, but then she's also like, an, she's in another scene as another character, and then you realize how theater magic y it is rather yeah. than like presentational, like you yep. said. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to talk a bit about the themes of like death and family, but we've talked about them in Once on This Island, and it's actually really similar. Yeah. Like in terms of Edward sort of had this, has this journey where he has to come to terms with. He is going to die and he has sort of like this really beautiful approach to life. It's all about like he's just all about living everything to the fullest and loving so intensely. So he's this beautiful character who's just like just passionately loves everything about life. And this is, I think, I actually think death in musicals is really like I love that shit. Yeah, it was right? Philip Lowe. Oh, yeah, God, yeah. He was good. Yeah, he was amazing. I wonder what else he's done in Australia. Yeah, I actually think he might have, I think I've seen him in some plays. He was sensational. Yeah. Really. And he was really sick during that run. Did oh, you know that? I think I did know he that. He was really sick. And Could still did Tyron just... have to do a performance? Yeah, Tyron had to do one because he, I think it was like laryngitis or something yeah. crazy. Um, yeah, because Tyron had to step in. Yeah. He also just has a beautiful voice. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, what do you think about musicals where a character dies? Just generally? Yeah. It's a hard line to walk, that's right? for sure. I mean, I think that, yeah, like I said, like the 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 messages of this and Once on This Island are both really important yeah. where we actually examine the death. impact yeah. and death on Facing all of our death lives. Or, yeah. Um, no, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's very – so, you know, I just have a general opinion that like a gunshot going off in a theatre is really hard. There's things like that. Yeah. But, yeah, I do think that uh, – a show like this, it's a really important. Well, I think what this show and Once on This Island does is by addressing death, it just really highlights life so beautifully. Yeah. And so both of these shows are really just about living mm. and and how to live without all the other bullshit, really. Yeah. Like it, there's so much more about what is important about life. Exactly. Which I think is really cool. Um, okay, gateway songs. Yes. Okay. Can we just talk about Norbert Leo Butts for a second? Let's do it. Fuck, he's good. It's ridiculous. Sometimes I actually forget it and I think the reason I forget it is because I dismiss him sometimes because of his involvement in that monstrosity wicked. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> he's so vocally on point in this cast recording. His and voice not, is ridiculous. Well, not that he ever isn't on point, like ever. Yeah. But I think this character fits him so well in a way that maybe some other characters haven't. Like, I think he's better in this show than he is as Jamie in the last five years. Wow. Yes. That's right. That's a Fight big me. call, it's a yeah. Big call. <laughs> but I think it's because he gets to show like his acting chops, comedy chops in a way that last five years doesn't necessarily like not to this extent. And also just his showmanship. Yeah. Like this is really like he's gotta be a showman for this yeah. show. And he is. Yeah. I think I forget that about him. Yeah. 
But he's But then wow. you think of also like Catch Me If You Can and like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Like he does just fit he's into that part so well. So well. Yeah. And man, like his belt. Oh, my oh, God. Ridiculous. Something about his tone just makes me feel really comfortable. It's got it's got so – it's such an interesting voice as yes, well, which you don't like, hear on Broadway. No, you like, know, it's all the same tone, but yeah. his tone is like, you know, straight away it's Norbert Leo but singing. It's almost like – it's not nasal. There's another word for it, but no, it's, it's quite like, bright. It's like gravelly but very clean. Yes. I know it's like a weird – How does he do it? I know. It's very it's strange. Sexy. It's so sexy. Very sexy. <laughs> He's got resonance in a way that not many other tenors do. Yeah, I agree with that. Oh. And yet he'll just like, like – like in last five years, he just like drops a C in somewhere, no. like high C, like yeah. How does he do it? But it's but sounding like a baritone. Yeah, it's ridiculous. He's a freak. Okay. Anyway, I just needed to say that because if you, I'm going to tell you my gateway songs, but I think you should listen to the entire cast recording and just revel in everything that he sings. And he's in it a lot because he's a very important character. Yeah. Okay. So for gateway songs, you won't hear all of his banger songs because I just. They're not, they're just not yeah. all gateways. Um, this cast recording is very easy to listen to and access. So there's only one available on, there's yeah. only one that exists and it's the original Broadway cast. So it's on Spotify. I've linked to it. I think you should just listen to it because it is really easy to listen to. Even though this is a book musical, the songs are not, they're not too obscure that you can't just jump into them. Well, I find Andrew Lipper's yeah. music is very listenable, verging on boring sometimes. sometimes. Like that's really well. And some people have said like it's quite repetitive yeah. or whatever. But I think there's enough variation in this. But it's certainly score. very listenable. Totally listenable. Yeah. Like you could just have it while you're working. You could just have it in yeah. your ears. Yeah. Um, I've chosen gateway songs that reflect more of the family drama element of the show rather than the fantasy element. Okay. So because to me that's what the show is. So yeah. the first thing I think you should listen to is the only really showy, flashy, spectacly song, which is Be the Hero. Yeah. It's one of the it's like second song. It's really the main opening, but it's um it's this the flashiest you will hear. But it is also typical of that fantasy element. Yeah. The rest. So the second song you should listen to is Stranger. I've mentioned this one in a mixtape really early on in our mixtape days. It's the beautiful Bobby Steggett who has a gorgeous, gorgeous voice. voice. And he had a real he had a real moment on Broadway and yeah. he hasn't and really done like, anything. Watch this guy. Yeah. And then nothing happened. He was in the ragtime revival yeah. and yeah. His voice is really beautiful. Yeah. Really beautiful. This is a beautiful song. It's really talk it's at the beginning of the show and he's talking about like his father is a stranger to him and, yeah. and vice versa. It's beautiful. Then you need to listen to Time Stops, which is a beautiful love duet between um, Norbert Leo Butts and what's her name? It is, shit, what is her name? Kate Baldwin. Yeah. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's just about like when he first sees her and, yeah. and falls in love at first sight. Ah, pretty. And then the last one is I Don't Need a Roof, which is just Kate Baldwin, so Edward's wife singing. And it's it's so real and so like what I love is that this show does portray that like older relationship yeah so you see them meet and fall in love and they're young but also you see them when they're older and they've got a grown-up child yeah and, and how do relationships That's age beautiful. and, and in yeah. that kind of like fiddler on the roof exactly. kind of way yeah exactly where you just see them like ease into each other and then also just have their share of serious problems yeah. too like it's really i don't know i think a lot of people dismiss this show as a bit of fluff yeah there's just so much more than that yeah like i i just cried like a baby when i saw it yeah 
Because it's so pretty. And like I said, so many people we knew did, you know. Yeah. I kind of wish it had been my only experience of the show. I'm just sad. I am sad that, yeah, I'm sad that you and Andrew didn't have that experience. Yeah. And also, you know, I have to admit that, um, and this isn't always the way, but like Andrew really didn't like it on yeah. Broadway. And he has much more negative opinions of shows than I do generally. Like yes. I can almost he's always. He's a Josephine. Um Whereas I am generally, but that can be hard. Like if if someone, if you see something with someone and they really don't like yeah. it and all they talk about is how much they don't like it, yeah. that can affect your opinion of something. Definitely. Because I remember walking out of it and being like, my God, I love Norbert Leo Bartz. Like I remember having those things. But I also just remember being a bit like, eh, yeah. you know, like just it not really affecting me in any yeah. way. Because I can't imagine you actively disliking something. So I know it's you would have left Incredibly going like, rare for me to do that. Yeah, I know you would have left really thinking of the positives, but that's not the way that Andrew thinks. Yeah, and then I do remember like, when we saw that production at the Hayes, he was just like, well, this is the way the show should have been. Yes. You know, and, like, we both had that reaction. Yes. But it did mean that it's, like, that's a long way to get to then, like, loving the show. Oh, you know, 100%. like, it's a long journey to there. 100%. Yeah. I um, I told Shane I was doing this this week and he was just like, oh, my God, Big Fish. Yeah. The experience of Big Fish. Like, he, yeah, for both of us it was, like, it's like religious. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we had a moment. Yes, and I would do anything to go back and sit in and that theater and, and and watch it again. Yeah, what's you know? It's so funny. Like when you have those experiences, I know that if even if I sat back down and watched the exact same production again, I will never feel that way again. Mm. Isn't it just? Do you think that's weird about theater? Yeah, I know. It's so like temporal. And, it's so temporal. Yeah, it's it is interesting because even so, like some of my favorite shows, I haven't had that experience yeah. with, but like. Colour Purple Revival was like that for me, definitely. It, it's maybe when you don't expect to have that That's experience, right? right? Exactly, like, like where it you surprises go sit in, you. Watch Sunday in the Park with George, and you expect you're going to be fucking moved. Yeah, it's probably not going to have that impact. Exactly, but exactly. you will have that feeling when you watch Sunday in the Park with George. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, we actually were dealing with some like heavy, some heavy shit this episode. Heavy shit this one, yeah. It's good. That is good. Musicals should deal with heavy shit. As well as being joyful. I love that it's both. Well, and these two shows this week are very much that. Yeah, isn't that funny? It is funny. We just, we don't sort of, no, we, we don't just plan. kind of list them and then whatever kind of comes yeah. up against each other comes up against each other. So we don't, we yeah, certainly don't really... check with each. We try and make sure it's not the same composer yes. or time period really. Yeah. Yeah. But no, this one, I think this is our best marriage. Mm, certainly in terms of themes. Yeah. Yeah, so sorry if we got too heavy for everyone, but um, actually Let's, I'm not sorry. No, normalise death. Yes, and normalise these shows. <laughs> Let's do them more Let's often. Let's normalise musicals. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, have a good week, everyone. Yeah, um, listen to the mixtape on Thursday. Yep. Please leave us a review and a rating and subscribe. It and really helps other people find the show. Yeah, that's our goal at the moment is that, you know, we've been doing this for quite a while and we love doing it for our our three listeners <laughs> that's um hyperbole we only have two um <laughs> but um thank you thank you but we would love for other people to listen absolutely so the more that you can share with others the yeah better. and if you have someone that you think would enjoy it please send them send it along yeah and uh otherwise we'll see you next week bye, bye. bye.